0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Table Work, how new plays get made. My name is Amber Bradshaw, and I am a new play dramaturg, arts administrator, and educator. On this podcast, I chat with theater makers about the art of new play dramaturgy. Our mission is to demystify the process of creation and collaboration, explore ways to better our field, share tools to diversify and improve the work, and record what we discover. This podcast is brought to you by Working Title Playwrights, a new play incubator and service organization based in Atlanta, Georgia, in which I serve as the Managing Artistic Director. For more about WTP and me, check out www.workingtitleplaywrights.com.
1: I would like to see much wilder creative ambition on much, 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 much kinder rooms. Mm. not much fairer rooms <laughs> kinder rooms because I think the fairness will come or because fairness is going to mean something completely different to everyone you can't actually litigate it yeah. with language you can, yeah. oppression is always visible <laughs> so you can always ensure against oppression you can't always ensure kindness
0: I'd like to start by introducing y'all to our guest today Matt Torney. Hey, Matt, welcome.
2: Hello, hello, how are you?
0: Thank you so
3: much for joining us. It's so great to have you.
0: Originally from Belfast, Matt worked as a freelance director in Ireland before moving to the United States in 2006 to complete an MFA in directing at Columbia University. Matt directs both new plays and dynamic productions of classics with a focus on deep work with actors and creating vivid imagery through design. Recent work includes Doubt by John Patrick Shanley nominated for three Helen Hayes Awards, If I Forget by Steven Levison, nominated for three Helen Hayes Awards, Mother Struck by Stacey Ann Chin, nominated for two Helen Hayes Awards, including Best Production, and The Hard Problem by Tom Stoppard. Prior to joining Theatrical Outfit as Artistic Director, Matt was the Associate Artistic Director of Studio Theater, one of the leading contemporary theater companies in DC. Before that, he was the Director of Programming for Origin Theater, an off-Broadway company whose mission is to bring the best of European new writing to the USA. Additionally, from 2007 to 2015, he was an associate artist of Rough Magic in Dublin, one of Ireland's leading independent theater companies for over 30 years. He is also a part-time lecturer at the University of Maryland in the School of Theater.
3: Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing at T.O. And, and how the new play development sure. part of your work is so intrinsic.
1: Well, the first thing that I'll say about, about Theatrical Outfit is the connection to Atlanta is the most vital part of our identity. To say something that might be a little controversial is I don't actually believe that the American theater exists. Mm. People talk about it all the time. There's a magazine called The American Theater. There is a group of gatekeepers and tastemakers, mostly associated with one or two cities, who describe the field. And there's a lot of thinking that mostly comes out of two or three universities that that create the field. But actually, the people who go to theatre, unless you're in a tourist city, are your local community. And in many theatres across the country, the artists who are on the stage are not part of the local community. Mm -hmm. They're part of the regional theatre system. Mm -hmm. where they're flying in graduates from certain colleges to do plays and singing and flying them out again. Now, I think that's perfectly fine if you're in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere that wants great theatre and you don't have an economy that can sustain artists. But if you're in a city like Atlanta that's full of actors, playwrights, directors, designers, to me it seems like an extraordinary opportunity to explore the relationship between theatre and place. And like, and if you go back to the very beginning of what theater is, how it evolved, what it was supposed to be, you know, citizens would go to the theatron, you know, the seeing place, to seek insight. You're like, mm-hmm. it's that's what it is. Um, the, the the commercialism of theater is something that I just that has only existed for a couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. So I see any artistic director particularly with some of the questions we've been challenged with in these last couple of years. Like the biggest thing we're offered is the chance to explore a relationship to place, a relationship to our community. And, and I see that as a really kind of rich and vibrant relationship, and it goes in a couple of directions. Some of it is bringing in great plays from elsewhere, assembling great teams of local artists to create a production that resonates with this place, with this community now. And the other way, is to create work here, about here, or connected to here, or resonating with here, with and by artists who are here, and you send it in the other direction, Mm -hmm. so that places can communicate with other places through theatre. And and in a way, as soon as you start thinking about Mm theatre as a product or a commercial product, it starts to kill its metaphysical value, which is to manifest spaces, (laughs) internal and external. Yes. For audiences to explore together. And, and that's true. Even if you like simple realism or, or, or more straightforward plays, you know, it's still an act of profound transformation. But we all know when it's dead. and We all know when it's cynical. And we all know when it doesn't work.
3: I love the idea of plays communicating with like community. The, the play is being sent and it's having a conversation with this community and we're going back and forth. I mean, that is. That's gorgeous as a just as a cultural conversation. That's that's beautiful.
1: Well, theatrical outfit, our mission is to produce world class theater that starts the conversations that matter. Um, you know, the world class, but that can be a bit of a sticky idea. Essentially what it means is that people working in Atlanta are as good as anything you will see in New York or Chicago or London or anywhere else. It's like a bit of it's a bit of swagger. <laughs> 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 you know, it's just like you don't like it doesn't have to, all the energy doesn't have to go in one direction. We can create it here. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a conversation that matters is, is I think initially we understood that to be political, but as time's gone on and the world's got worse, I don't actually think it's about politics and I don't actually think it's about rewriting or rewiring. I think it's about connecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ultimately think it's about making meaning. Yeah. A conversation that matters is one that helps you make meaning out of a complicated world. Sometimes that can be very dramatic and complex. Sometimes that can be metaphysical and obscure. Sometimes that can be joyful, thigh-slapping holiday comedy.
2: Mm-hmm. Like there's
1: room for it all. Mm-hmm. If you are leaning towards a community and asking, what do, what, what do we need to be talking about? What energies need to be unleashed here so that we can connect with one another in this space, mm-hmm. this, you know, in a, in a way, ancient space. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's an idea that much more appealing to me, more complicated the world gets, is what came before and what can that teach us? Mm-hmm. So what... What is theatrical outfit? Theatrical outfit is a theater that wants to connect to the community in Atlanta, that wants to create a home for artists right in the heart of the city, and that wants to have a bit of swagger and say that Atlanta's <laughs> awesome and everyone should work here and everyone should come here. <laughs> and if you're not here, you're missing out. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, that's awesome. Tell us a little bit about Made in Atlanta and what that program is.
1: So it became very clear that if we were going to be creating work in Atlanta, we needed to have a program that was designed to do that. Um, and Made in Atlanta, the idea of craft, of making, of you know that stamp, that seal of approval, just had such a, it was fertile, <laughs> <laughs> to quote Deb. Um, and we just sort of had the, the, the idea of the logo of this like circular stamp made in Atlanta. Yeah. And how that that could be a provocation to artists Mm. to kind of, you know, step up their best Atlantan ideas. Um, And from the beginning, the program involved commissions and workshops kind of to help the play along and also readings and particularly this uh, Unexpected Play Festival that our companies do together. We were like, we're already doing that. So we just folded that into the conversation as Atlantan artists... Offering new Atlanta plays to audiences and this sort of feedback space, so that the audience could help create the next stage of life for the play. So that was that was the original idea. So we do four to six readings a year. We do between one and five uh, workshops a year, depending on on what funding we've been able to secure. Um, we have our first commission, uh, which is a hip hop musical with the early life of Young John Lewis, which is is is. In the early draft things, I think we, it's a musical, so the third draft of the script is the first draft of the show. Because <laughs> you've got music and yeah. they're just so complicated. Um, and we're gearing up to, to announce our second and third commissions um, next season.
3: That's amazing. Who's who's the team for Young John Lewis?
1: So Young John Lewis, uh, the composer is Eugene H. Russell the Fourth, Atlanta legend. Yes. Um, uh, the director for the the workshops is uh, Tom Jones the Third. I
3: think it's Tom H. W. Jones the Third. Yes, uh,
1: who's wonderful and a dramaturg to yes. his bones.
3: Absolutely, <laughs> um, He's put together a ton of world premiere productions.
1: Yeah. Uh, the dramaturgs our own, the Dy Moon. Um, and then the book writer is a, a, a hip hop playwright that I meet from DC who's a family connection to Atlanta called Sam twenty four who gets the kind of uh, the political story and he just understands how hip hop and the history of hip hop can exist as a theatrical form in a way that's really exciting.
3: That's awesome. I'm really excited about that commission. That's very cool. And
1: it was just, but it was it was the answer to the question. What stories are missing in Atlanta Theatre? And lots of stories are missing. This was the first one. Yeah. Um, uh, This is the first one we decided to tell. And like we commissioned it in 2019. Mm -hmm. It's one of the first things they did after I got hired. It was like the bolt from the blue of the commissioning idea, like arrived fully formed in my mind. I was like a hip hop musical about John Lewis's early life, looking at how he became a man of conviction. How he grew into his moral compass and how that dictated the course of his life. And he was still alive at the time. We were hoping to involve him. Mm. But we were determined not to look backwards, but to create a living document for younger generations so that they could connect the energy of this time and look forward. So that was the extent of the idea. And then I I felt like it it wasn't mine. I was just the steward (laughs) who had received it and was passing it on.
3: (laughs) I love that. I love that. Um, really looking forward to how that project develops and you're doing some other, uh, projects with Made in Atlanta, are you not? Are you doing, um, in addition to the Unexpected Play Festival, which maybe I should explain, we, every year we do three or four, um, developmental readings with, uh, working title playwright members that are selected. And we're going to do a live one this year. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Cannot wait to do a live one. Um, But yeah, so please tell us a little bit more about. Yeah,
1: so essentially, like the commissions are are projects that we generate and that we steward from inception. And either it's ideas that come from within the company or ideas that people pitch to us that we just want to put some resources into. Um, Workshops are plays that DaI encounters. Either right, people send in or the encounters elsewhere or that he kind of t- that hears about directly from the writer um, that have been written or developed to a certain point and need some time in the room with actors to kind of take a big step toward production. So this fall, we did three workshops. The first of our workshop of Young John Lewis, mm. um, a workshop of a play called The Most American Town by Leo Zorio, which was part of the Unexpected Play Festival last year. And was Lee was turning into a, a production he was producing himself. And he just needed some time and space and focus to kind of get the script ready. And we're like, yep, yeah, we, can, we can do that for you. Um, and then a play called Marry Me Bruno, Bruno Mars by Megan Tabak, who's uh, uh, the resident playwriting fellow at Emory. Um, that's looking at events surrounding the spa shootings, in Atlanta
0: and mm-hmm. Asian,
1: the year, role of Asian-American identity in American identity. And the conceptions and misconceptions around that. So three very different stories, all connected to Atlanta and the South, all looking at it from very different lenses and angles, all starting conversations that matter.
3: Um, and all with primarily local artists. Primarily local artists. It's amazing. That's fantastic. That's a really robust program. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I would say producers in town, some of our producers do some really robust programming, but I feel like sometimes I'm unclear as like to the story or the narrative that that programming um, has or is, is doing. Um, so I feel like this is really clear. So I thank you for all of that and investing yeah. all of that.
1: Well, yeah. the fact that it's, the fact that it's so clear, it's basically what's mission aligned. Right. And like if, if the two things that we are are an Atlanta theater company that wants to start conversations that matter in the community that has to be the lens for all of our programming, new work or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ways in which the program has developed this year is that we've we've got a little bit more. We're doing a renovation, we've got a little bit more space internally, and we're able to share it. Yeah. yeah. So you know, working title playwrights is now company in residence. So we're yeah. able to be like, you want to do great new work in Atlanta? Here's a room in which you can do it. And and I, and I just think that 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 idea of uh, I mean culture of abundance. Mm-hmm. sharing, connecting, collaborating, harkens right back to my first experiences of theater and youth theater. Um, but also it's something that, though it seems obvious, is, is a little bit too rare,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: not just in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah.
3: Sometimes I think because there's such a scarcity model um, for us as artists, you know, we're just like, we're always running to catch up rather than being able to really set up the building blocks and really do the foundational work that needs to be done, you know? I think it's hard to find time for that. But for me, it's just, it's like everything, you know? If you don't have that, what are you building off of, Mm -hmm. right? Um, We talk a lot about like what the new audience is and how theater is going to be revived and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, they're out there, but we have to find them. We have to reach out to them. We have to, you know, so yeah, this to me is these kind of programs do that. You know, in a really intrinsic way.
1: Well, I think that, I mean, similar to the culture that we're trying to build in our rehearsal room, is that we have to have an intersectional understanding of our audiences. They don't all want the same thing. And frankly, the patronizing idea of like old white folks as the only people who come to the theater is it's, it's, it's both kind of doing them a great disservice as human beings and also doing everyone else who isn't them a disservice because they have being wedged into a binary opposition again. Instead of understanding art as something with multiple connection points, multiple ways in, that even an audience who is homogenous are going to walk out of that room with vastly different experiences of what they just saw, unless it is a very specific type of commercial product. Mm -hmm. but even then it's going to resonate and reach with people in different ways, is I think that we should be trying to to cultivate humble relationships with folks Mm -hmm. based on sincere invitation um, rather than on deciding who people are and what they want. Mm -hmm. Like if artists know who they are and what they're saying, then it's about connecting with folks who need to hear that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, saying the theatre is one thing or isn't another thing right There's room for everything
3: absolutely i mean i was talking earlier about how our programming isn't seasonal right so we're not really selecting and so we generally have with working title our audiences are often based entirely on who the playwright has brought in or the actors that are in the on the team or the content itself Um, And so we, yes, we have regulars, but um, because we are a service organization with a membership, but it is stark, the differences in who shows up. And so for me, I'm like, well, the audiences are here, right? It's a matter of acknowledging that they are here too. And that's what you're saying. It's like they aren't, old white people are not the only audience.
1: But Um, also they're not a bad audience, like, and I, again, this is one of the binaries is because they're associated with the past or because certain theatre models have favoured subscriptions, which have appealed to, like, suddenly folks who are complicated people, complicated lives, complicated relationships with themselves and their families are suddenly seen as, like, oh, just idiots who like some kind of boring stuff and not, like, the real audience, right? They are the real audience. Because, like, it, it's... You just need to understand that people need different things. You can't all need the same thing. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like restaurants don't all have, to have the same menu, <laughs> <That's> right? <laughs> well, what we have to get better at is reaching the audience and telling them why this play might connect to them, mm-hmm. and then not excluding folks, not telling them it isn't for you because it might be. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I because I and I see that I see that going in two directions. You know, or, or it creates this illusion that there's a formula you can figure out that's going to kind of...
3: Yeah. And you know what? Also, too, for me, it just clicked for me that there's also a lack of accountability in that. Mm-hmm. Like, the audiences didn't make the plays. No. So it's their fault. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for, like, what we are all contributing to the form and the field, right? If, if we're the ones, you know, if these bigger producers are the ones creating these shows, then they're responsible for the content they're putting out being, frankly, really not complicated and not representing the full spectrum of humanity. It's not the fault of the audience. It's the fault of those assuming the audience can't handle the material. Right? Exactly,
1: or the myths. You yes. assume you assume that, that, that older white people are not going to be interested in diverse stories. Because of some market data, that are a couple of theaters, I'm just right, like, I'm like data, I mean, we just started, right, exactly. we just, <laughs> we've literally just started to try and dismantle some of these myths and try and understand these things from multiple perspectives.
2: Yeah.
1: Because the counter argument for, you know, oh, white people only like these audience, or only like these plays, you suddenly start thinking things like, oh, well, a black audience will only like this. Because the binary thinking obscures the humanity. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, I've been thinking about this an awful lot, like an awful lot recently, is is the Greek theater,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and specifically the idea of the dialectic. Because most Greek plays involve some kind of binary opposition, mm-hmm. and the play explores this binary opposition colliding and, colliding and colliding and colliding and colliding and colliding. And what happens at the end of all of those plays is one person or two people are broken by the collision of these binaries and by the inability for new ideas, to synthesize from this collision. And generally, this is the moment of catharsis, is, you know, Oedipus has the famous revelation, rips out his own eyes, because he, he didn't see the binary opposition between knowledge and ignorance and his role within it, or, or force and gentleness, the force that was causing him the need to know. Antigone and Creon being the, the book's famous example, you know, who's right morally or individual power versus state power? What happens? You know, you know what happens is when they collide,
2: mm-hmm. everyone
1: is consumed because what, what dies is mercy. So I think, um, and I'll quote a Dai A Moon here, <laughs> you know, very wise man. We, it's, it's not that we need to solve this with intellectual ideas. We just need more narratives. Mm-hmm. We just need more. Yes. More narratives, more diverse narratives, more perspectives, more. We need audiences uh, that are multicultural, plays that are multicultural, plays that are monocultural, audiences that are monocultural. We just need to stop being afraid and just really try and expand our horizons of what this art form could be and who it could reach.
3: And also maybe we don't think about one monolithic audience anymore, right? And we think about, especially for playwrights, we're thinking, who's the audience for this play? It's the people that you, as a playwright, want to come see it. That's your audience. <laughs> and whoever that is, write for them. Yeah. And that's that. It's really that simple. There is no write for a white audience. Explain yourself totally. to somebody else. No, it's tell your story. Tell your story.
1: Because what will happen is if your story is is, is big enough, rich enough, human enough, people want to see it. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one thing that we saw time and again, um, certainly as we were emerging from COVID. We can't actually predict who's going to come and see each of our plays. We're always wrong. so Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I, 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 we, we, I'm at the point now where I'm like, data is hard to, <laughs> it's hard to get good data and hard to make good decisions off data. It's much better to rely on instincts and creativity. The The way in which we measure success and we'll continue to measure success going forward are the ways in which we represent our community. Like, I don't think that theatrical outfit can really live up to its full potential until our audience, our artists, our staff, our board, all look and feel like Atlanta. Now you can question what that means, city of Atlanta, region, it doesn't really matter. I think the answer is different depending on on what you're really asking,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but you know when it's not.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You know when you go and you sit in that room, that doesn't feel like, yeah, like our community.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that that I think is a much more profound guiding principle for me: place, yeah, community, than the morality of a binary opposition as expressed in the internet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, algorithmically tuned to induce <laughs> the maximum amount of rage, to <laughs> sell you something, and encourage a certain, <laughs>
3: yeah, right. whatever you know. Yeah, no, I love that. That's. That's really profound. So, I want to ask you a little bit about your experience with dance. Something, that, <laughs> something many people do not know about you. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you're new to Atlanta, too. So, I want people to get to know you. I know my secrets. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and of course, you have quite a a background in dance, um, and you still work in it today. So tell me a little bit about your background in dance, how you got into it, and kind of how you engage with it now.
1: Um, uh, yeah, sure, so uh, I I was a reluctant dancer. <laughs> the, the way it started is my mom came home one day and was like, good news, I signed up for a dance class. And now if you're a 12 a year old mm. in Belfast, <laughs> You gotta assume immediately that your mom was trying to get you killed. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean, she definitely doesn't want your lovely friends. I guess, like, like
3: so Billy <laughs> Elliot, is a real thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, when I watched <laughs> Billy Elliot,
1: I wept. I wept so I cried so hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, um, uh, but but she she basically you know being a, a tough Belfast mother said, "I've already paid for it, so do it." <laughs> and I was dreading going in there. Um, and, and I walked in and it was a hip hop dance class and the guy teaching the class was this sort of big, big black dude from London called Sylvan Baker with an East End accent. And we had this like baggy trousers for Beanie. (laughs) You know, he's just, he's he's probably the coolest person I've ever seen. (laughs) And, um, it it was at the time when, that Basil Ehrman's Romeo and Juliet
2: Mm -hmm. had come
1: out. And uh, they were doing a kind of hip hop dance routine to the album for a show. And you know, it was my first thing. I, at first, I had two left feet, didn't know what I was doing, so just sort of watching. And I can tell you that what I was seeing in that room was nothing that I'd ever seen in Northern Ireland or Belfast before. It's like, no one was talking about politics. The obsession that that uh, Irish theatre has with what is Irish theatre or what is Ireland wasn't present. It was about kinetic movement, and I remember there was a couple of um, of dudes who were very cool, you know, who like <laughs> big boots and chains and all that kind of stuff on, and they were like doing this dance where they're throwing chairs around, and it, it just it wasn't the kind of um, gentle dance that I was expecting. It was something much, much, much more vivid, primal, connected, and I was hooked. So I went every week, and then I got another dance class, and then I got a third one. And then I was like, you know what? Actually, I was giving ballet a hard time because there's a lot of really good technique in there. So I started taking a ballet class, and then got to the point where I was doing six days a week of some form of dance or theater training, Um, and that basically became my my entire life. Um, and I, uh, I remember when I was 16, I joined a, a, a dance company with these two Belgian dancers who were based in Northern Ireland, but would tour. And I made some work with them and one, one of their touring pieces. And I did a lot of work in kind of parades and festivals. And then I got invited to join a, a, a youth dance ensemble. I was dancing with Merce Cunningham when he was doing a performance. <laughs> I had no idea who he was, just like some old American dude. And there we were dancing with, you know, Merce Cunningham and this very famous storied New York company at the the Waterfront Hall in Belfast. So there's all of these sort of like pretty extraordinary experiences and extraordinary creative experiences. And every single one of those rooms was different. It was teaching me something different. Um, And I think that whenever it came time to choose what I wanted to study in in university, um, much as I loved that kind of the animus and the body that creates movement. What I was actually interested in was form. Mm, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I was more interested in the dramaturgy of dance than the dance itself. <laughs> so I decided to go and do an intellectual degree, and, it's, and I decided not to do an acting degree, right. but to do a theatre and literature degree to kind of go and just mm. expand my understanding of, of like language and form, and then. The plan had always been to kind of go and study acting after. Oh, okay. But uh, then I found directing. Right. That was that. <laughs> that so was, you that found was the directing
3: in college?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of these things where uh, I was convinced I was going to be like some form of dancer, dancer, actor, dramaturg. And I took a directing class. What was that? Well, all the things I loved about dance and all the things I loved about performance were there. yeah. And all the things I loved about, you know, structure and inspiration were right there. And then it just became part of my practice to be very, very, very aware of the physical aspects of production. And the way I sort of, uh, after I did my MFA and directing, the way I learned to describe it is is I look at things simultaneously from the inside out and the outside in. From the inside out, is it's spiritual dimension, its content, like what is the force that this story is in is, is exerting upon the world. Outside in, what are its mechanics, what are its what's its form, what's its
2: mm.
1: what's its showbiz? It's like Barnum, <laughs> <laughs> PT Barnum looking at it, you know. Yeah. Checking the tires, you know, and and and, I, and and looking at it from the outside in, you're like, well, how is it moving? Where is it moving? What are the lines? Mm. What are its dynamics in the inside out? Is its why?
2: Yeah.
1: And I find, you know, that's what keeps me hooked as an artist is exploring both the why and the how, or looking mm-hmm. at things from the inside out, you know, inside in. Mm. So dance just became part of the vocabulary of directing for me. It became part of the eye with which I used to analyze productions. And um, I've done some things that are more intensely physical, and I've done a lot of things that are very textual. Um, and then recently, there's a, a dance company in Washington, D.C. who have been hiring me to, to work with them to to help conceive direct original ballets. So we did one of uh, the love song, proof rock, and we just did another one that was a radical uh, reimagining of The Great Catsby. Oh, fun. Yeah. Uh, breaking it apart because it's in the public domain, so you don't have to be kind to it anymore. And you just explode it like we did with... Proof rock into a series of images. And the image we used was a, a stained glass window being hit with a hammer. Oh, wow. And you pick up the pieces and you arrange and rearrange and arrange and rearrange them into new patterns. And what do you get? Mm. Turns out you get something that looks a lot like the Great Gatsby Lon- <laughs> lonely souls lost in a dazzle of materialism, ah. leading inevitably towards tragedies. Truths are revealed behind all the lines. You know. mm-hmm.
3: It's
1: a pretty classical ballet structure right there.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> right, right, right.
1: Dance, in, like, and I think dance dramaturgy, initiates with a feeling in your body that then you interpret into words. Mm-hmm. So I would say that when I am working with actors in a room, I have those instincts mm-hmm. about where they should be and where they should go. I find that directors who plan everything in advance kill the creativity and the artists with which with whom they work. Yeah. And 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 like it can be very successful. It has been very successful for certain major American and international directors who have a visionary sensibility, but that is not about community. That is about artists as genius consciousness, how we going to avoid <laughs> the right. timeless when void. You, you know what I mean? It's like it's a different mm-hmm. model. Whereas what I try and do is is, is operate as a catalyst,
2: mm-hmm.
1: to kind of like meet artists and, and and see their instincts, tease them out, and weave it together into something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, um, so sometimes what I've what I've made looks very much like realism, and sometimes it looks quite abstract, and sometimes it looks like a big opera with lots of color, and sometimes it looks like something else. But what I've learned is that you just gotta listen to the the play Mm. from the inside out Mm -hmm. and from the outside in and find a way to meet those energies.
3: Mm. That's great. That's really beautiful. Um, I feel like you can do that as a dramaturg just as much, right? Um, It also goes to this idea of trying to um, make sure, especially for new play dramaturgs, that you're not just grounding your feedback and your response in analytical criticism. You're, you're allowing your body and your heart and your soul to respond. And that is such a big part of what you are doing as a dramaturg, when you are giving a playwright feedback, um, it is a sensory experience and should be right. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, like the, the thing is, um, the, the tricky thing is, is that at some point there needs to be some, some rigor involved
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and often that looks like this, not this. You've got to choose. Yeah. So one of the things I observed studying viewpoints in my MFA with Anne Bogart is viewpoints has never met a choice. It doesn't like, <laughs> right. It right. empowers individual creativity, but it doesn't always connect that creativity into an ensemble. That's something that emerges. If you've been working together for decades, like right. city company, um, And and I was just like, aha, the director's job, or the way that this tool is useful to directors is choosing what is the play and what isn't the play. Mm
2: -hmm. And and
1: I think if you create an environment in which people are connected to their sensory instincts, their spiritual instincts, their emotional instincts, but that all of that is being focused, condensed, and channeled towards this very 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 specific goal that's when stuff starts to resonate at a at a kind of extremely powerful level
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, i think that's something i learned in the classical theater as well i can't remember who i mean look it's, it's almost a cliche at this point but i remember the first time that someone said treat classic plays like they're new plays and new plays like they're classic plays it was very wise hmm Because, like, assume that the Talmud has never been done before. So what does it have to say to the world anew? And assume that this new play has a very sophisticated structure that needs to be analyzed like the Talmud rather than rejected because it doesn't resemble something familiar.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, when... I think of people, I immediately thought of Jason Minadakis when you were talking about that because, you know, Jason, who is at the Marin Theater Company these days, who was the artistic director at Actors Express in Atlanta when I was an intern there, um, he came from Cincinnati Shakes and he did Shakespeare for 10 years Mm. and developed his own directing technique, uh, which I had the honor to learn, um, which is really, you know, text is music based. But he used everything he learned from Shakespeare to create that style and never once put it to Shakespeare after he left, Mm. right? So he used it for new play development collaboration and it was, it was, and it was, it was fantastic. Um, And so much of it was about energy and flow and um, people connecting kinetically to the work, right? Um, so yeah, that really resonates for me as well. There's so much to be learned from the structure of the classics and not in copying them, but learning about how they do what they do.
1: Learning about how they do what they do. But, but also there are some classics that have endured because of the relationship with the canon. And there's some classics that have endured despite the relationship (laughs) with the canon. Um, And and I think that when you are awake to what is present, I mean, Greek plays, obviously, I'm I'm on that kick at the minute. The idea that the theatre can be a place where binaries collide in search of synthesis. I mean, that idea, that doesn't have to look like kings. No. That doesn't have to look like, you know, a certain royal family and gods and choruses and stuff like this. You can use that idea... Of a dialectic mirror mm-hmm. to the world, to a sophisticated political world, and collide those binaries in search of synthesis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Be humble. Ah, yeah. As, as what I begin every process by saying, that my core values are integrity and kindness. Mm. Kindness and respect go hand in hand. Integrity is what leads us to rigor, integrity is our route to exceptional work, and kindness is our route to culture and community. And they go hand in hand. And someone in the room might want to be very collaborative. And someone in the room might want to be very quiet. And someone in the room might want a relationship with a mentor. That mentor might be you, it might be someone else. Someone in the room wants to give you three choices and you pick one, someone else in it. And, and I think that like the emotional intelligence skill is probably the best one to bring into those spaces rather than the, the political theory skill. Mm, hmm. Because what you want to be is humble enough to not think that, not think that because something worked before it's going to work again and humble enough to not think that you know best. No room for bullies. Right. No room for sarcasm and belittling. Mm. No room for dismissing. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful.
3: You know, and I think that that is the foundation of what, what I talk about when I mean facilitation. And I think, being humble and being kind, um, and unfortunately, that is not something that we get enough of these days, right? You know that it's something that we as humans need to challenge ourselves to constantly be doing. Absolutely, right? it's, it's not necessarily going to just happen, right? It is a conscious and intentional effort in in being thoughtful. Yes. Right. Listening. Yeah, and listening.
1: listening and and like i'm making sure that everyone knows that if someone is called apprentice or intern you treat them with respect Mm
2: -hmm. yeah that they're that
1: they're part of the community too this is how they learn this is how they this is how they grow everyone has something to contribute again i don't know i suppose as i listen to myself i sound more like a (laughs) priest but i think i'm just i'm just so suspicious of um I'm so suspicious of language because so much language is used to harm, par- control. Yes. And then when I find myself in spaces where language is policing interactions, so that that the interaction being policed is rarely because of instinct or impulse, but often to things that are being mapped onto language or mapped onto the society or the community. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like, if we as theatre people can be kind to one another, one might emerge that has not existed
3: before. And I, I appreciate what you say about bullying, because I think people need to understand that that is exactly what that behavior is. Right. And that if you are trying to grab power in a space and harm others, you are, you are bullying. And I think as adults, we don't think of ourselves that way. We think, Oh, we're not kids, so we can't bully each other. But in fact, we can and we do, right?
1: Whenever people are free, in a space, to discover, and they know that they're supported. Mm, that's great. Yeah. Then they can connect. And then there's room for danger. Mm-hmm. You, you, have, you created that permission, that community permission. Yes. But it feels a little bit more like a family and less like a, a meeting, a balanced
3: medium. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. Yeah. And a good family, not a Tolstoy. Right. Not a, not a, not a uh, yes. unhappy family, but, but you know, they, they, or maybe that's the dark version of it, but that idea of it's the best word is ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
3: that's why I always call them creative teams. I yeah. just immediately start up. You're the development team and you're all yeah. on this team. <laughs> um like you said, language, yeah.
1: right? Because um, one thing I've observed is that the theatre community is full of bullies who don't know they're bullies.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Like the acts, you, when you see an artist break another artist's heart in a room because that artist isn't tuned in to what's really going on or isn't really listening, like those are the moments that I think are, uh, they're the things that people never forget. Those mm-hmm. profound emotional impacts. Now, often, the director is the person with the most power who misuses it the most. That's not always the case. Yeah. And and I think that this is one of the great things to come out of conversations in the last couple of years is people are being held accountable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: People are being, you know, asked to be responsible for the impact, not the intent, which I think is is truly wonderful. And people are meeting one another. In the healing space. The meeting one another in the healing space is not the stuff that tends to end up in the media. Right. Algorithms don't like healing space as much as they like angry space. Mm-hmm. So the column inches devoted to the villain are not devoted to excellence, point of kindness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the, I mean, I know one of the questions on your list about what relates to more in the future. I said, I would like to see much wilder creative ambition on much, 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 much kinder rooms. Mm. Not much fairer rooms, <laughs> kinder rooms. Because I think the fairness will come or because fairness is going to mean something completely different to every room. You can't actually litigate it yeah. with language. You can, oppression is always visible. So you can always insure against depression. You can't always insure kindness.
3: Yeah, that's beautiful. So let's move into favorite
0: new play references
3: (laughs) and inspirations. You know, we've mentioned Peter Brook, obviously. Big fan of Peter Brook. Do you have any other books, essays, quotes that you want to add to that? uh, Favorite resources of yours?
1: Like there's so many. I I, I would say that, that for structure, I've never read a book, never read a, a better book than The The Art of Dramatic Writing by Leos Egri. So Hungarian mm. too. you know, that's a real classic. Because it just it's so simple and clear, no metaphysics in it at all. It's just about, you know, redefining structure as character instead of action. As a response to Aristotle's poetics. Um, I think that um, for colored girls, mm-hmm. choreo poems, hmm um, as an Irish person, reading that for the first time, understanding the sophisticated imagery of the soul mm-hmm. that was possible on the American stage, that was really, really, really profound. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as a structuralist, how do you tease out of that something for a production? Mm-hmm. It's just a completely different also a completely different experience. And I'd say even for folks who are interested in realism, understanding how images can resonate, how abstract images and resonances can collide. Um, you know, that, that's, that's very profound. Um, and then, I mean, this is gonna sound a bit of a stodgy one, <laughs> but uh, like just the Cambridge history of theater. I remember before I kind of went to grad school I read the entire thing, annotated it Wow. with like sticky notes.
3: How long is it? It's not.
1: It's not that long, you know. It's really? a textbook. Because like I suggest the textbook is just sort of like you look at your Greeks, then you look at the Dark Ages, and you look at the Medieval Ages, and Got you just kind of iterate towards it, right? Um, and and just some of the different ways in which plays have worked. Yeah, because I, I think there's a there's a disease in new playmaking. <laughs> where something is popular and then it's copied.
3: Yes. Oh, God, yes. And um, Please um, do not subscribe to this disease. Yeah,
2: please
1: do not, do not <laughs> please contract. do not I'm not 100% sure theater history is the antidote to this disease, but I do think that um, that an understanding of theater history is a way to connect to the spiritual metaphysical history of theater. Mm-hmm. If you can kind of get past the stuff for the detail of the stick and just be like, right, Elizabethan England, what is that?
3: It's kind of like, what have we learned? What do we learned? That's what, it. What, yeah. we learn? what, what have we learned?
1: What happened? Well, how did they do this? Mm-hmm. How did they solve it? Yeah. Because so much of the contemporary definitions of success or failure are connected to money. Right. Whereas actually, I think it's probably a bigger conversation out there. You just need to free yourself from the kind of chains of this not-for-profit capitalism. And I speak to you. As an artistic director of a not-for-profit, mm-hmm. who dances daily. <laughs> yes. with the ethics of not-for-profit capitalism, and there's many comforts in it, including, you know paying union wages and um, all of those things. But I think in terms of the future of theater, like when I think back to what has formed me as an artist, is I am able to read contemporary plays and see resonances in them that so reach back.
2: Mm -hmm. to my interest
1: in classical theatre, in ways that are tremendously useful.
3: Mm. Can you give me an example? Um, That'd be a hard question.
1: No, 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 no. Uh, I I uh, I directed um, um, this amazing new play by a writer called Ligrid Stevens, called The Twelve Labours of Hercules. And it was an autobiographical story about his family um, growing up on a farm in Iowa during the Second World War um, in, a, in the Mormon community. And what happened when the father went away, the war never came back. And the family had to endure like this life without him. And the way in which he explored the scale of the emotions, captured the kind of intimacy of what they're going through, was by reaching back to the 12 Libras of Hercules, and grafting these classical illusions onto this world of intimacy and familiarity. Mm. So he would, he would, um, you know, it was the, my favorite one was the, the Nemean lion. It was There was a, a cat that was like killing the chickens, like the matriarch of the farm.
2: Right.
1: You know, <laughs> broke the cat's neck and hides it in a sack, you know, and doesn't tell the kids because they love the cat and their heart will be broken. And you hear this epic music come up and the t- the third titles come on you know Hercules slays the Lion. <laughs> you know and it's like yeah and because of my interest in Greek mythology and Greek theater, I knew how to make that resonate not as a cliche mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. as like a refracted mirror looking at these heroes or that these heroes were looking at us through it or, or to use. American myths as if they were larger but that, that was like both aesthetic and structural mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. now he, Lee Groot is, a, is an incredible playwright who kind of maps complex historical illusions into his plays. but as a director I was able to meet them, tease them out and turn them into real living objects an audience could experience right
2: on. Very cool Thank you for that
3: sure <laughs> all
0: right so favorite three playwrights right now <laughs> and why
1: um uh Sophocles Antigone because I just I just uh, I gave a lecture um, on Greek dialectics and was very interested in looking at that play a contemporary lens, and how unresolved it is oh god yeah mm-hmm. yeah should Antigone bury her brother who has been named a rebel by a new regime? Or should she let him rot and have his soul forever on rest? Because he was named a rebel for political reasons, by a regime. So individual and familial rights versus state power. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think anyone's cracked that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the fact that, that what, what Sophocles was offering citizens of Athens was temperance. The extreme voices will consume one another. Mm-hmm. If you don't think of it from a human perspective, from the point of view of mercy and forgiveness, and fallibility and failure, you're not going to reach anything that resembles reality because extreme positions exist only in language.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but that so that's a play that like you know has been haunting me for the last the last few days. Um, and uh, all always on this list for me is Anton Chekhov. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, those plays, the comedy and tragedy of them, the mm-hmm. com- emotional complexity of them, the mystery of them, the layers. The, I don't think there's anyone who writes better character studies.
3: I, I actually often think that people don't understand Chekhov at all, and that he's really quite funny, oh yeah, and so often the the productions I've seen have not been funny at all, and I'm like people don't understand that he's funny, do they
1: well, you know you, you wrote um uh uh short comic short stories when he was alive, he wasn't known as a playwright. he's known as a, the comic short story guy. <laughs>
2: love that funny books That's funny correct. short stories really short
1: stories <laughs> I I, read and, he had, and he wrote he, he had this book of like observations that he had you know to put in his stories
2: yeah and i remember you know
1: i, I read that before i directed three sisters i've directed, I directed three sisters in cherry orchard and nearly directed uh, uncle Vanya. that one fell through and, and one of his allu- one of his observations was uh, uh, met a woman today the skin on her face was so tight that when she opened that when she uh closed her eyes she had to open her mouth and vice versa
2: <laughs> oh
1: and you're like that's not <laughs> oh, hamlet wandering through the russian steps that's like Seriously. people are ridiculous and, and but they're <laughs> the, the plays that like a, a, every stage in my life when i've read them i've resonated with them differently yeah these, they're observations rather than than didactic lessons yeah so, so sophocles is a classicist a structuralist Opposing forces in this mm-hmm. kind of quite direct way, there's this softness and expanse, flexibility and dynamism to check off. And the third person on the list is, because uh, uh, I've been reading a lot of her plays for um, uh, season planning, is Lynn Nottage, who has the most flexible ability with form and style of, <laughs> like, I think, any contemporary American writer. The fact that she can write both Malima's Tale and Sweat and Crumbs from the Table of Joy—you're mm-hmm. just like here's the, here's a really phenomenal memory play. Here's a really phenomenal kind of like gritty political drama. Here's a kind of allegorical round about. you just the, the the scale of her dramatic imagination. Um, I I just love how she just come completely reinvents herself all the time. Mm -hmm. And whatever she does, she brings the sophistication to. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Like Madonna in the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta keep it fresh, (sighs) gotta keep it moving, because as soon as you've created something, when you are that famous, people are going to copy it. So you got to do something new, Mm -hmm. right? But also you're going to get bored otherwise. Yeah. So you should be trying new things, right? I Absolutely. Love I love that. Uh, so favorite three dramaturgs or new play artists?
1: Okay, I'm going to name three dramaturgs. <laughs> I love the dramaturgs. Uh, uh, the first two are the, the two dramaturgs I work with at Studio Theatre in DC, Adrian Ellis Hansel and Lauren Halverson, um, who just are two brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds, hearts and souls. And their, their approach to new play development was, was so focused on the playwrights, but also expansive in terms of audiences and narratives and emotional impact and structure. I learned so much just from spending time like reading plays with both of them. And then also at Studio, the practice was for dramaturgs in the room. So there would be show dramaturgs as well. Oh, love it! Uh, which was just invaluable, right? To have that 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 gaze present,
2: yeah.
1: Um, that you can work with. And they're also just sort of two wonderful, wonderful human beings. Um, and uh, I took I took notes on the impact that a great dramaturg can have on an organization. <laughs> and so my third dramaturg is going to be Adrien Moon, our associate artistic director. Um, because welcoming a dramaturg into the kind of leadership philosophy of your organisation is a very, very, very wise move because the structure and impact and philosophical ground of your decisions is always up for discussion. And you, you look at things from artist perspective, audience perspective, theatre history perspective freely, and a and dying might have read more plays than anyone I've ever met, you know, from the mm-hmm. international canon, the American canon, you know, he's mm-hmm.
3: always he's always oh yeah that reminds me of boom you're like wow he's that's... constantly consuming yeah just so much it's amazing
1: yeah so so I I rely on Adai a lot for artistic decision making here and you know really welcome his mind and his perspective um, so yeah
2: my I love
3: that um, I think we would all benefit from seeing dramaturgs in more leadership positions yeah yeah
1: yeah. I think so too. And I think any theatre that has a new play programme and doesn't have a drama Turk should really consider what they're doing.
3: (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Absolutely. I'll say no no more about that. I completely agree with that. Um, And then some of your favourite theatres.
1: In New York, Playwrights Horizons. Just that ongoing dedication to
3: incredibly
1: sophisticated productions of new plays. You know, so many new plays are, are presented with apology
0: because mm. of, uh,
1: the economics involved. Um, um, I'm familiar with this both as an artist and a producer. Tough one. Mm. Um, Refer back to comments about not for profit capitalism, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but they just have done a, or just such a terrific job, and they're one of the first places they go, I go to look for exciting new playwrights. Um, Rough Magic Theatre Company in Dublin, where is an associate artist. So they're just the leaders in the field of new work development in Ireland, and have an abundance of dramaturgical talent, um, not just in the dramaturgs, but in the directors and producers and company managers and It's just a really, really, really um, loving and inquisitive group that have had a huge impact on the way I approach my work. And then third, Royal Court, London.
3: Yes. Granddaddy. Yes. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) You know
1: what they did for, like, breaking open the canon and letting new voices in. Mm -hmm. They're just incredible, and I think that they had their heyday in you know the latter part of the 20th century and uh, uh, uh they also started a movement where there's tons of amazing new play houses all across the uk now yeah that are built upon that model and artists from the royal court have gone on to found
2: yeah so the dynamism
1: of new play writing in england i think is a lot of a lot to thank the royal court for
3: i agree with you i love <laughs> that one i love that one um i've i've had an incredible time watching all of the wild movies and stuff they were doing in the eighties and seventies and stuff. Wow. Talk about some cool work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And also state funded. So they just had no, like it was just a different,
3: yeah. A different
1: model of success. They could be so much freer with what they were
3: doing. Yeah. And you know, this whole idea of stuffy British people, man, that is not the case with this work. Mm. It is wild stuff. I mean, people check it out. (laughs) Because <laughs> yeah. it is some of the most interesting Check stuff out, I've art, ever yeah. seen.
1: Uh, uh, Howard Brenton,
3: yeah, Romans
1: in Britain, Edward Bond saved all of Carl Churchills already. Stuff, um, really good.
3: I mean, I the Mahabharata, like all that. Oh my God, just mind blowing. So. Find that stuff, y'all. It's usually in libraries. <laughs> usually you have to find it yeah. in a, in a university library, but it is so worth checking out. Um, and then I guess best advice for new play artists, you know, coming up today, what do you think is, is you know, what's, what should be the foundation of, of what they are doing and where they're going?
1: So I give the same advice to every artist that comes and asks me for advice don't wait for someone else to do your work. Mm-hmm.
2: hmm
1: Theatre is a very complex ecology. The timeline for, like here, because I've got a lot of very, very, very good intentions, but the financial and economic realities, what I'm able to do in a given year, very, very, very challenging. The, limit of, the number of opportunities are very limited.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that one thing Atlanta is lacking and one thing that the nation is lacking are like dozens and dozens and dozens of unapologetic young theater companies Mm -hmm. who are taking wild risks and cultivating new audiences and breaking open what theater is, breaking open how theater works, breaking open how theater relates to media, who are taking all the risks that we can't. Because I I find this thing happens is because particularly in Atlanta, there's not a lot of young theater companies applying pressure from below. Mm -hmm. You got a whole bunch of middle-aged theater companies like us being expected to be radical. Right. And I'm like, I think that in the theatre ecology, our job isn't to be radical, it's to be excellent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Our job is to provide income and wages for artists and try and like always be paying artists more and building a pot of money. And you know, that's where the vast majority of our money gets spent. It's on people. Mm-hmm. And I just think we need to keep, 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 keep doing that. Um, and what I would love... Is if it was 10 young companies inviting me to something every single week. We got Mm. this radical happening. We Mm. got this brand new play. We're doing a festival of 10 new plays by trans writers. We're breaking open this thing. We're doing a live concert, hip hop theater collaboration. We're doing a art gallery invasion. We're doing a polemic street rap battle play. That's written in 24 hours in response to a political movement. We're, reinventing classics uh, in site-specific environments. We are taking over a theater for six months and founding an ensemble, and we're just gonna kind of see what happens in months five and six. Like, bring it. Yeah. Bring it. Mm -hmm. The new work development room is a safe room. New work development is a necessary stage towards new work creation. Don't just be a developer, be a creator.
3: Love it! That is fantastic advice. And so, where can listeners connect with you and keep up with your work?
1: Um, our website theatricallife.org Our social media channels. Uh, I'd say pop on there, join our mailing list. Um, we're fairly communicative, <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> particularly around the end of the year, Giving <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tuesday. Right. But uh, uh, also our social media channels. We we try and peel back, peel back the curtain the people, into the the, the rehearsal rooms. And, Show folks what's going on behind the scenes. Well,
3: that's awesome. Thank you so much for everything you do for this community and for Atlanta. And I am personally just thrilled you're here and contributing to the ecology here. You know, I think we all need to be working together and supporting one another. So I'm just really grateful to call you a friend and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, thank you. My pleasure.
3: Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Work. How New Plays
2: Get Made with Amber Bradshaw. This podcast was brought to you by Working Title Playwrights. If you like what you've heard today, support this podcast and all our initiatives by leaving us a review, following us, and or consider making a tax-deductible donation to Working Title Playwrights at www.WorkingTitlePlaywrights.com. Table work.